Today's episode of the Skull Sessions podcast is brought to you by In Two Minutes or Less, Elite Sports Emergency Care Training. Use the link in the description to learn more about how In Two Minutes or Less can transform your staff into an elite, life-saving team. Thank you to Mike Oliver, Noxie Executive Director and General Counsel, for joining us today on Skull Sessions. I'm, I'm here today with Michael Oliver, uh, Mike Oliver, uh, who is the Executive Director of Noxie and also represents the General Counsel for, for Noxie. Uh, so as you were saying earlier on, you, you, just a few minutes ago, you wear a number of hats at, at Noxie. So w- what, what are those hats that you're wearing? And is one of those the, the helmet that's in the background back there? Is that, is that uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, we have helmets all over the place, right? And and shin guards and and lacrosse balls and everything. So things come in from time to time. We don't do any testing or value or product evaluation, and so these are here mostly for my education. Because from time to time, you'd like to see the thing that your standards are addressing. Right. So, yeah, they're scattered everywhere. All right. So you wear a lot of a lot of hats at, there there at Noxie. Uh, I do, yeah. I, I mean, I've, you said general counsel, executive director, but um, but the office here does everything. We handle uh, communications, we handle um, meetings, logistics, we handle um, uh, public complaints that come in or public comments that come in about standards. We manage all the finances, so we do everything here. So I'm comptroller, evaluator, auditor, general counsel, executive director, greeter, Wow. So a little bit of everything. Uh, and podcast interviewee, right? That's right. I have so, to add that to my list. Yeah. So, so Mike, with, with all of those things that you're responsible for doing, I, I certainly appreciate uh, you taking the time out uh, to spend some time with us today to, to maybe shine some light on, on some of those things that you do uh, oversee at Noxie and maybe give us some insight into the activities Noxie is, is, uh, is active in. And as I said during our discussion earlier, our introduction, um, my uh, interest in reaching out to you uh, came from our discussion with Thad Eyed earlier uh, in an earlier podcast. Uh, and it was during that interview that I realized that maybe I didn't know enough about Noxie. I didn't know uh, what I should know about Noxie. And Thad kind of pointed that out. Um, and in doing so, I, I realized the limitations of my knowledge about Noxie. And I thought, well, if, if I'm in that boat, uh, there's probably others. Uh, in the athletic training profession or sports medicine professions, maybe that um, are in the same boat as I am. So that that was my impetus for reaching out to you. So uh, and, and I I appreciate very much the fact that with all of the hats that you're wearing and obviously all of the the commitment that you have that that you would break away and, and spend some time because I I think you have a lot of good information that uh, our listeners would be interested to hear. Well, Mike, I'm, hap- I'm happy to do it. In fact, part of our job is to disseminate information, and that includes information about us as an organization. So I'm here to answer any questions and, and provide whatever information I can to assist in that regard. Great. Well, we certainly appreciate that. So let's, let's look at uh, – I'm a history buff all the way around. Um, so let's, let's start with maybe a little bit of a, a historical perspective, and, and we'll keep it brief on the history side of things. But generally speaking, if you were – to, to look at football helmets in general, we always think of that uh, traditional leather skin football helmet that started the whole concept of maybe wearing a helmet. And most would agree that maybe in, that started uh, with uh, George Barkley in, in 1896, who was a, a halfback for Lafayette College, correct? And, and it 
between 1896 and maybe 1939 when Riddell introduced the first plastic helmet shell with a suspension system inside of it, right? Um, and then it was around 1970 that some work started to surface um, regarding looking at the severity of, of the, or the hazards of brain injury associated with collision sports and in particular football uh, and, and looking at whether head protection had any influence on that. Uh, and then the NOXIE standards were published, I believe, in 1973. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, 73 to 74 in there depends on, on which version you want to look at. Right. So then from 73, 74 on, football helmets were, were what we kind of traditionally think of as football helmets. They all relatively looked the same. And it was in about 2002 uh, that Riddell came out with a Revolution helmet. Now, arguably... Uh, and, and Riddell will tell you that um, they believe that was the start of the modern football helmet uh, because that, their design of the Revolution helmet in 2002 was the first time that analytics were used in designing the new helmet. So, uh, you know, from that point, if you, you can argue that one way or the other, but from that point, we've obviously had a, a breakneck pace of changes in helmet designs, analytic programs, standards updates, uh, and various rating systems that are now in place. Um, so where does Noxie fit into that narrative, that historical narrative? Well, we come in about uh, six years before the first standard was drafted and published. So we were organized here in Kansas City, um, 1968, to, as a general year. Um, when the NCAA and the National Federation of High School Associations um, and several other organizations, like American College Health Association, um, met here in Kansas City specifically for the purpose of addressing um, the current state of head injuries and fatalities that were occurring in organized football in the U.S. Yeah, I, I couldn't give you the actual average number, but over the previous 10 years, around 20 to 22 um, fatalities were occurring in football as a result of head injuries, direct head injuries. And it was getting to the point of, of being called certainly a crisis at that time. And so the question was, what can we do to address it? And out of that meeting with the NCAA and the, and the um, National Federation and the American College Health Association uh, came the creation of a committee. And the committee's purpose was to address this issue of fatalities and head injuries that were occurring in football and to see if, if there wasn't a way to certainly reduce them and hopefully eliminate them. Um, and at that time, there were no standards for helmets. There was no guidance to any manufacturer as to what a helmet was supposed to do or how it had to perform or anything about it. You just, as a manufacturer, you were free to, to pick and choose whatever style you wanted or whatever uh, mechanics you wanted to manage the, the energy involved in head impacts. And so the committee included some research scientists, some neuroscientists, neurologists, um, biomechanical engineers, and over a period of about four, to, four and a half to five years, uh, were able to engage in a significant amount of research, eventually sort of focused in on the impacts that were causing the head injuries, to, and you were seeing at that time skull fractures, uh, subdural bleeding, subdural hematomas, bleeding in the brain, and a a, a system of assessing 
the severity of an impact was developed. And then the determination as to what the threshold of that severity level would be. So if you were below that level, you were reasonably assured of not sustaining a head injury. If you were above that level, there was a significant chance of receiving a head injury, including fatal head injuries. So that was sort of the genesis of what we, uh, what we did and how we came to be. Um, that committee worked primarily with um, Wayne State University, their, their neuroscience research laboratory. At that time, the leading uh, researchers in the area of brain injury and, and um, impact biomechanics were at the Wayne State University um, laboratory. So they did a lot of that research for us, um, for the organization. Eventually, the standards were developed. And once that was done, they were sort of at the end of their initial roadmap. What do we do now? And the decision was made, I think, universally that, you know, there's probably other standards in other sports that we could effectively address. Um, and so the committee was then made permanent, incorporated uh, bylaws established, and that occurred, I want to say, 1970, 71, around in there. Okay. So, so it initially started with football when, and head, head protection, but then... You, you realized that the work you were doing had some had some value across the spectrum of protective athletic equipment in general. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. So, uh, in establishing that across the board, um, what what are the primary objectives of Noxie? What, what what do you wake up every day hoping to to accomplish? Well, we basically have a three part mission statement. So it's ba- it's basically to. Uh, engage in research, conduct and fund research to into the areas of sports medicine and science, and that includes everything from epidemi- injury epidemiology to um, the biomechanics of injury um, to um, uh, determining um, injury characteristics and, and profiles so you can better tailor a standard to a particular injury. And it also includes the dissemination of information. Um, the information that we are able to discover through the research that we fund then is made available to other other researchers, other companies, other uh, members of the public, and then eventually to develop a standard, if it's feasible to do so, to address the injury in, in a particular sport. So so at Noxie, and Noxie is in Kansas City, is that is that correct? That's correct. So at Noxie, is there research going on there, or are you getting your analytical information and you're getting your research by funding universities and other research groups that, that perform the research that you feel is important? That's exactly correct. We don't do any research here. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah, it, it's, we think it's much better, more effective, and um, results in a much better product if we fund research at the university level. Um, and we follow the NIH protocols for developing grant applications, reviewing those applications, grading them, ranking them, and then um, uh, making a decision about which grants to fund and which grants not to fund. And I, I can give you an example. When concussions were starting to be a public issue, which would be around 2010, 2008, started seeing a lot of press on it and, and the discussion about the risk of, of concussions. We had been funding research into concussions, the biomechanics and the understanding since about 1996. Um, so we had been in that for a long time trying to get some answers to it. And at that time, um, I'm told by other researchers that we were basically the only source of funding for sports-related injuries, in particular concussions, 
because the other organizations that fund those kinds of things, that research in general, are the National Institute of Health, NIH, and some other big government organizations, and they weren't funding research into sports injury and medicine. Um, and we didn't have a great budget. We didn't have a lot of money to spend at that time, but uh, the money we had, we funded research specifically into concussions. So from about 1996 through today, we have funded over $10 million in basic research at the university level on concussions alone. Now, that doesn't include heart, uh, sudden cardiac death and sports and other areas where we've been pretty active. Um, but that's how we fund the research. And then the research gets published, and it's available to everybody. Um, and that, we think, advances um, not only the development of standards, but it, it enhances the, the improvement of safety in general. All right, so I have two follow-up questions to that on the science part of thing then, that's, uh, of your, your comments there. First of all, um, I, I've been introduced to this concept of science versus pseudoscience in the, in the head impact protection uh, realm in general. And that, uh, as I've gotten more and more uh, prepared for these various podcasts we're doing, that seems to, that's an issue that seems to come up. Now, with the funding that you provide, and you obviously have established criteria for the science that, you, that you're going to spend your, your funds on, um, what are your thoughts on the science versus the pseudoscience? Uh, in, in fa- let me give you some examples. Maybe, maybe that would be. Sure. So we have, we have head protection science dealing specifically with football helmets. And, and you know, we have various helmet manufacturers, most of which are very cautious uh, to say how safe their helmet is or the degree of protection that, that is offered. They, you know, they're, they're very good uh, at, at being careful the way they, they present their helmets as being possible concussion helmets. And, and the, others outside of the manufacturers uh, aren't so careful. So, you know, there, there are other organizations that possibly promote one helmet as being a concussion helmet relative to another. Uh, even more so, we look at mouth guards and the science behind mouth guards uh, and their ability to protect against concussion, uh, which uh, you know arguably uh, is is in the pseudoscience realm. Uh, and there 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 are other pieces of equipment that I think manufacturers make, and I, I liken it to this: the the sports supplements, right? Uh, that manufacturers of supplements are notorious for taking what could be a very valid and reliable piece of research and they extract a sentence or two out of that and then they create a supplement and they they suggest then that the supplement uh, is based on this particular body of research and it seems like maybe that happens a little bit with other pieces of equipment that manufacturers make relative to concussion all right we'll stick we'll stick to concussion for now and then I think the media picks up on that and the media exposes concussion uh, and manufacturers and athletes and organizations and maybe presents um, this idea of how dangerous athletics are. And I don't know if that's necessarily based in hard science. Uh, And we'll get we'll get to another question I have waiting for you as well on that. But what are your thoughts on the actual science? And, And I'm going to make the assumption that you guys are are funding good, solid, sound and reliable research, right? With, with well thought out designs. Um, 
We and, certainly try to do that. Yeah, we yeah. We don't exercise any control. Once it's approved and funded, we're not involved in the decision process. But right. we try to make sure up front that, number one, we're, we're funding people who have a track record of published, peer-reviewed articles. So the team that they're using is, is one that's well-respected. And number two, we look at, as a part of the evaluation process, the study design. Right. Is it, is it, if it's epidemiology, is it, is it powered enough? Is it going to give you information you can extrapolate to the, the sport in general? Um, and then we also look at you know, the, the, the budgeting of the, that's been requested, how much is being used for you know, the direct research versus overhead and costs and those kinds of things. And we have limits on that. So we try to make sure that when we get to the funding decision, the decision is based upon that review process so that when the research starts um, and the publications start to flow out of that, you're going to have something that is useful and reliable and valid um, as much as you can. Um, you know, you, you never say never, but right. it happens from time to time. But, so, you so know, we also require they be published in peer-reviewed journals, and the peer review process adds to the credibility as a general statement. So would you say, would you, would you believe or would you say that there, there's a little bit of a battle going on between hard science, peer-reviewed works, scholarship, um, in referee journals done by uh, reputable researchers? Would you say there's a little bit of a battle going on between that and maybe the drama uh, that is produced in the media? Yeah, I, I, there's a, I don't know if I call it a battle. I, I think what you see is, at least my, in my experience, what I have seen is, I wouldn't really call it pseudoscience. I simply would call it sort of a layperson's misunderstanding of, maybe misunderstanding is too kind of a word, misuse yeah. of yeah. The, the, the data that comes out. And the best example I, I see, and, and the, um, the, there was a publication from the uh, National Institute of Health some time ago uh, about this, but... When you measure head injuries or, or head impacts and helmet performance, one of the things that you look at are, are the level of accelerations. We've heard G's referred to a lot. And so in general, the higher the G's the brain experiences, the greater the likelihood of an injury. Now I'm really simplifying this, but that's sort of the general statement. The lower the G's experienced by the brain, the less likely an injury. But it's not a straight line. And so you can experience G's from 10 all the way up to 50 or 60, and the risk of an injury is really, really low. Uh, in some cases, probably not even measurable. It's just kind of down in the statistical weeds. But at the high end, once you get above 90 to 100, maybe 110 and over, the chance of an injury is almost certain, not in football anyway, not quite, but almost. And so what you have is you'll have a company will come out and say, if you put our device on a football helmet, we can reduce the G's by 25%. Well, they'll then try to equate that to a 25% reduction in the chance of an injury, mm. which is not science, not right. statistically valid. And in fact, depending on where you're measuring, if you're reducing it from 50 G's to 40 G's, it's a zero change um, in risk. Might be a 10, 20, 30% reduction in the number but it makes no difference in the risk of the injury. Um, and, and so they try to simplify for purposes, I think, of selling a product. If you add this to the helmet, you have a 25% chance, a less chance of sustaining a concussion. And that's just not a true statement. So how would you uh, suggest then that parents, coaches, 
and, and even medical professionals who are dealing with the questions about those types of products. How would you suggest they counsel their, their athletes? Uh, how, would you, how would you suggest that medical professionals counsel athletes, parents, uh, provide education for coaches when they see that type of information, when they see those products, when they see those products come out and they're not stamped with the NOXI standard or any other governing body or organization that would represent some sort of a standard, where would you suggest they get their information or, or how would you suggest they go about counseling those, their constituents on relative to those products? Well, I think you can make general statements that, that claims in advertising, um, especially if they're specific types of claims, you know, we can prevent all concussions or we'll reduce the chance of concussion by 25% or those kinds of things. If they're in advertising, I would really be suspicious of, of relying on it. Um, we have fact sheets on our website and, and general explanations about those kinds of topics mm. and, and what to look for and what not to look for. Um, but if it, if it shows up in advertising, quite frankly, to me, that's a red flag. Um, a lot of times if you follow that advertising to a, a manufacturer's website and they'll indicate they have studies available, they've done research. If you click on it, typically it's not peer-reviewed research. It's they hired a, a researcher to do some testing yeah. and they did some testing and here it is. Um, and so, um, so I just be very cautious of claims that are made in advertising that are specific. Now, <clears throat> if they say things like, you know, we believe this product will improve the protection for concussions, you know, a belief is a wonderful thing, but unless there's some really hardcore documentation of it, um, that's just an opinion. So a good resource then would be to come to Noxie, come to your website, because you actually Absolutely. you're actually looking at some of those manufacturers' products that are out there and and offering some information on. So uh, at least at least a good first step might be just to come right to Noxie for that stuff. That would be a good step, and and I respond to as I mentioned, one of my hats is a communications hat, and I respond to I couldn't tell you the number of emails and phone calls we address in a year from parents, players, and coaches primarily <clears throat> asking this very question mm -hmm. you know shouldn't I be using this product or shouldn't I be using another product or or why should I tell this parent yes or this parent no <clears throat> about adding something to the helmet um, and so we, we I'll give them that information on the phone to the extent that I can um, and through that process we've developed kind of an FAQ that, that addresses some of those that may not all may not address all of them but but most of them I think Oh, good. Good. I think that's a that's a good resource to know. I uh, again, uh, my own ignorance. I didn't know that existed either. So that's that's good. So let me let me follow up then uh, with with another question on right kind of leading down this road. Then, what would you have to say about um, the the risk of injury in athletics or team sports in general? Let's let's just take team sports, but. Everything always generally focuses back on football. But let, let's just start the question with team sports in general. The risk of injury associated with team sports in general versus the, the benefits of participating in team sports. What would you have to say about the risk versus the benefit um, in, in participating in athletics? And it's a leading question because I'm getting at the question of this uh, beat brow or, or this, this negative feeling about team sports right over the last couple of years that um, team sports are dangerous that maybe we, we shouldn't be participating in, in these dangerous team sports and and 
our sons and daughters are at greater risk of serious injury as a result of these team sports. And, and what we used to associate of the risk or, or the benefits of team sports are now overshadowed by the risk of significant injury. What, what does the science say about the risk versus the benefit of participating in team sports? Well, I think it, you have to, to be cautious in drawing general conclusions about that. Um, I mean, specific conclusions. Generally, you can say that being active, participating in team sports, um, carries with it a number of benefits, um, not just socialization benefits, but a, an attempt to develop um, a sense of, of personal confidence in, in your abilities and what you can do. There's an opportunity to develop leadership skills when you participate in team sports. Um, it's also a great environment for understanding things like fairness and balance, um, to understand that, that you're not always right. And, and you take something, you learn from a specific sport and generalize it to life um, across the board. You understand that success in most endeavors in life requires a team of some size. Maybe it's just you and your partner or you and your family or, or um, could be you and your school, but generally team efforts are much more successful than individual efforts. And it teaches you how to, how to be a member of that team, how to participate in that team, how to, to, to interact with other people who have similar goals. Um, and so I, I think from that standpoint, it, it's an outstanding benefit. The physical benefits of being active, depending on the sport, obviously, to being active, staying healthy, developing a habit of being active, um, have great lifelong benefits. So all of those tend to tend to weigh on the side of participating in, in team sports. There is a risk of injury in any in sport. It doesn't matter the sport, individual sports, team sports. Um, we have come as a society, I think, to at least tacitly recognize that there is an acceptable level of risk of injury in these activities or we wouldn't let our kids play them. And that, whether you're talking about tennis or basketball or, or soccer or um, field hockey or whatever, there's a risk of getting injured. It, as long as everybody's doing things appropriately, you know you can't eliminate the risk. And so you accept that risk, and then you balance that. What's the risk of my child or my daughter getting injured in a team sport versus the long-term benefits of participating in that sport? Um, and, you know, that's an individual balancing test. I don't think any of us can say, as a rule, you're better to play a sport than not a sport risk versus benefit. That's a, a uniquely individual balancing act. But if you're going to do that and do that effectively, you need to understand, I think, the reality of the risk of injury in a particular sport. Um, and I'll give you sort of a general example in football. Starting in around 2004, um, Virginia Tech began to collect what you refer to as analytic data by using a, a, a helmet-based sensor system where they could measure the impact um, energies and velocities and directions and so forth uh, of a football player. And that system was implemented initially at two or three colleges and I think one university uh, grew to encompass about, I think, 11 colleges all the way from D1 down to, to uh, Ivy League and five or six high schools. And over the period of time since then, they have collected data on, I think it's pushing 4 million or maybe just exceeded 4 million individual impacts that they have measured and documented what, where it occurred, what the player was playing, what position, 
the, the force and magnitude of that injury. And this data collected these head impacts in football for every impact that was above a nominal level. So the system wouldn't trigger to collect the data unless the, the accelerations of the head were above a certain level. And most of them were around, I think, 15 to 20 G. So if it, if it was below that, system didn't even, didn't even record it. And from that, we've learned that, and, and again, this is before all the changes were made to practices and games and so forth, but let's pick a year, let's say 2015. The average high school player sustained about 740 impacts to the head during the course of a season, practices and games, that were hard enough if he had not had a helmet or had a helmet that didn't perform, were likely to cause a concussion, hard enough to cause a concussion. So if you use the number of a million football participants in the United States in a year, in 2015 there were a little over a million, but a million participants in high school tackle football that experienced each experienced 740 impacts to the head that without a helmet would have caused a concussion, but with a helmet might have one, might not. You're pushing 700 million impacts in the course of a single football season and maybe 16,000 concussions, 13,000 concussions. Now, 13,000 is a lot, and I'm not meaning to, 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 right, right. to, to mm-hmm. dismiss that as an insignificant number. But when you're talking about risks, you're talking about exposure, how many times are you exposed to this, and how many times are you hurt. And so the number of times that you don't get a concussion, that you don't sustain an injury in that is exceedingly low. It's 99.9-something percent of those impacts don't result in a concussion. Um, and so when you're balancing the risk, you know, you need something like that to give you some perspective. Um, what, what is the risk? So if, if, if my kid's going to experience 744 impacts, what's the chance of one of those causing a concussion? And statistically, it's exceedingly low. Um, and it's getting lower with changes in, um, in practice uh, procedures, in full contact practices. It's, it's also getting lower because we're changing how we play the game. Um, so that risk management, is it, is it more beneficial to participate with the risk or not? Um, again, it's an individual decision, but it's also a decision that has to be made upon solid information. Um, understand what the risk is. Uh, I, I'm glad you threw those numbers out. That, that was a great narrative on that because um, I, I think it gets to exactly what I, the point that I was trying to make or that I was hoping that you would make. Uh, and I, I don't know the – I can't give you the Department of Transportation statistics that would match what you're talking about, but I've, I've always argued that it's statistically more dangerous to drive to practice than it is to participate in practice or to participate in a game. And that, um, that that those numbers that you're that, that you're expressing seem seem to to further um, suggest that as well. But I picked up on something else during that conversation. Um, you had mentioned that the risk is getting lower o- over time, uh, and you mentioned changes in practice and changes in the way that we're playing the game. You didn't mention changes in helmet designs, and I, I'm well, wondering. I'm yeah, wondering. Why is why would you not mention uh, because football helmets are getting getting better as well? Because that's a difficult measurement to make. You know, when when you have a problem that you're trying to assess, and you 
bring to bear on that problem four different things. So one is changing the equipment design and standards. The second is changing how you play the game. The third is changing not just how you play the game, but how you practice. And you do that all at the same time. It's impossible to tease out if you, if you see an improvement or reduction in concussions, which of those interventions was the one that, that gets the credit for it. Um, you know, the, the truth is all of them to some extent. Um, but how much of that's helmet versus how much is, is changing in practice and something else is impossible to measure. And one of the reasons it's impossible, particularly, I would say maybe in the last, not in the last, probably 2015 to 2017, it's kind of a narrow area, is when new helmet designs were coming out and they were either highly ranked at, at the Virginia Tech or otherwise, most teams couldn't afford to replace all of their helmets with the newer style helmets. So if they could afford to replace 10 or 20%, the likelihood is those newer high-tech helmets were going to be put on people who maybe already had had a concussion or maybe right. were a little more susceptible. Yep. And so, so that skews how effective they are. I don't know that that's true today. I think over time helmets have recycled, and so now everybody's got really good equipment as a general statement, certainly at the high school level. Um, but it, it's also difficult because each one of them is approaching it a different way. Um, when a parent calls me and says, what can I do to make sure my kid is as protected as they can be playing football? And I, the first thing I tell them is, well, I understand that the helmet is probably third on the list of things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing is don't hit your head or don't hit somebody else's head when it's not necessary. Right. You know, keep your head out of impact. Keep, keep, right. Keep it out of contact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Avoid the avoidable hits. You know, football has hits that are, that are unavoidable. It's part of the game. But there are also, and this is really true two years ago, three years ago, there are hits that don't have to happen. Um, and if you can avoid a hit to the head, avoid it. If, if you can reduce the number of times your head is hit by 20%, you've reduced the risk by 20% right. directly. That's immediate. That's today. Um, you know, a helmet may or may not make a difference in those cases, but I know reducing the number of impacts reduces your exposure, and that's yeah. a direct reduction. Um, and the other thing is to, to um, make sure that whatever helmet you're wearing, above all else, fits. Um, having a helmet that fits means it's going to provide the maximum protection that helmet was designed to provide. So equipment fit is important. Um, but so, so can I measure which of those interventions was going to be the best, the most likely to reduce concussions? Probably reducing the number of impacts. Uh, that's just a direct, a direct reduction. Yeah, if, if, if there is no impact, as you said, there, there's a certain number of Gs where you are likely to receive a, a concussion. That doesn't mean you will, but you are right. likely, right? There are a certain percentage right. that will. If that impact never happens, there's, there's zero. It's not a 50-50 anymore. It's, it's zero if the impact right. doesn't take place at all. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. That's good stuff. I, I, I like that. I think that's important to get that, uh, to disseminate that type of real information. So we spent a lot of time already talking about um, – some of these nuances of, of head protection and stuff, but tell me a little bit uh, about the, 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 the Noxie testing procedure. So there's been a lot said about the, remember, I'm, I know you remember the, the traditional drop test. 
Um, uh, Thaddeus Riddell suggested that Noxy has incorporated a rotational component. It's not just a standard drop test anymore, but there are rotational measures in in your uh, in, in your your testing protocol. So so tell me a little bit about the testing protocols because one of the questions I I had for or that came up as a result of my conversation with that is. I thought Noxy testing standards were antiquated, and I figured they were just based on the single drop test and all these other different measures had had progressed uh, with time and with our understanding, and that maybe Noxy was an antiquated uh, uh, procedure. So tell me a little bit about the modern Noxy standard and, and the testing procedure that, that that is behind that. Well, let me, before we talk about the modern standard, let me back up a little bit because. Um, when people hear drop test, which is true, the, the, the mm-hmm. core of the Noxy standard is a drop test. That is the core of every helmet standard in the world and has been forever. Whether it's um, combat helmets or mining helmets or construction hats or whatever the case may be. Because the helmet's designed to protect against an impact. And the best way to test it is to impact it. And the most consistent way to test it is to impact it under a controlled set. So you can either affix the, the, the helmet to a humanoid-like head form and drop it at a specified speed onto a surface that's very, very hard, or you can set the head form up on something and swing a pendulum into it. A uh, pendulum's a little more complicated, requires a, a bigger room, and has some other issues. So the drop test as a, as a, a method of testing a helmet's ability to withstand impacts and, and, and manage those energies is a universal standard in helmets. But when you say drop test, people think there's a test. You drop the helmet somewhere and see how it does. The Noxy standard from the beginning, has it, it's a drop test, but it is multiple impacts on, as of today, I think 29 different impacts on a helmet at four different velocities, including one temperature, high temperature velocity, with at least three different pass-fail levels, depending on the location and the drop speed that's done. And so a helmet to, 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 to pass the standard is not just drop tested once. It's impacted, like I said, 29 times. And a lot of those are successive impacts on the same location within a certain period of time, I think 60 seconds or 70 seconds, so that you can test a helmet's ability to, to withstand multiple impacts on the same location. One of the things that the Noxy standard does, which is not done by many, is we also require impacts on what are called non-standard locations. So the standard specifies standardized, if you will, locations. So the front part of the helmet, the side, the rear, the top, and then one called a a front boss or a rear boss, so halfway between side and front. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we also say the helmet has to withstand impacts in any other location. And, in fact, you have to show that through the random impact testing that you've tested the helmet in all of the other possible non-standard locations. And so by the time you add those up, it's 29 separate impacts. And the helmet has to withstand and, and pass at every location. You don't you don't get you know one out of 29, or or you don't get a pass. If it fails on any of those drops, it fails. That helmet fails. And so it's a very demanding standard. Um, um, early on, when when the standard was first implemented, um, I think there were the number of helmets in the field at the time that failed were about 83 percent. 83, this wasn't when, in 70, in the 70s? 73, 74, 75, whenever the the, the governing body started requiring compliance. 
some of the some of the companies that reconditioned football helmets bought test systems and they were going to test the helmets as they came in used and I think the number is 83, 84% wow. of those helmets failed the test. Um, and, and some of them failed miserably. Failed. Yeah, I mean, not I'm, just a I'm little sure. bit. Like, yeah. Some of them actually came apart in the <laughs> testing. So, 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 you know, but it's a, it's a very demanding standard. And um, uh, we also require that the helmet pass the standard without a face guard because that's the most vulnerable configuration for a helmet. The face guard adds rigidity. It adds stiffness to the system, which is good. But... We say that's not good enough for the standard. It has to pass without the face mask. So all of those impacts are done without a face mask uh, sort of uh, stiffening the system. Hmm. Now, that was the test, and it's been modified and revised, I don't know, 30, 40 times since it was introduced. We've reduced the pass-fail criteria. We've, um, we've done a number of other things to improve the, the, the quality of the testing, uh, to standardize the data collection that comes out of the testing. Um, and then as what that referred to was um, people call it a new standard. It's, it's still the, the Noxie football helmet standard, but it incorporates a second testing series that utilizes a different device, and it measures rotational accelerations. How well does the helmet mitigate or manage the induced rotational accelerations uh, inside the head form when it's impacted? Um, and that standard became effective actually this month, the 1st of November, uh, although I think most of the manufacturers have been um, making helmets for a year or two that meet the standard because they knew it was coming. Right. You know, they recognize this, mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're informed about what's coming on. So that's a change. Um, it, everybody for years understood that rotational accelerations are a significant component to a significant percentage of concussions. Um, the difficulty was in developing a test method that would repeatedly and reliably and validly test a helmet over time to induce those accelerations and measure its performance. So the test now incorporates what's called a pneumatic ram. So it's an air-driven ram with a, an impact head that sort of simulates a football helmet, although it's, it's not the primary purpose. Um, and then the helmet and head form are mounted to a device that's free to move once it's hit. So it's on a neck that's flexible, it's on a table that um, it's called a linear bearing table, but the head form's free to move as it's struck, like a player's head would be. Um, but it took a long time to, to refine that process so that we were comfortable if it was implemented, all the manufacturers would be able to address it effectively. I can understand from a basic level, um, if we were to hit, you know, you put that helmet, put a helmet on a head form, and you strike that helmet, as you say, multiple times. I, I can understand the idea that, you know, the helmet itself, you know, the outside shell is going to absorb some of that impact. It's going to dissipate impact over the helmet shell. The, some of the internal materials are going to uh, absorb and dissipate some of that impact force. So hopefully it's mitigating that impact force before it reaches the head. I, I can understand that component of a, of a football helmet. Uh, it's it's hard for me to comprehend how a helmet is going to have any any effect on rotational uh, rotation the rotational component. Uh, how how is it? This isn't a leading question by any stretch. I, I just don't I don't see that. You know, in my in my head, I can't yeah. wrap my head sure. around how just because you put a helmet on, how is that helmet at all going to stop rotation? Well, there's uh, 
it's a complicated answer. It's a simple question. It's a little yeah. bit of a complicated answer, but um, th there are rotational accelerations in every head impact, um, even even if it's on a drop test. The, the brain or the, the inside of the head form that measures these accelerations is going to generate some rotational acceleration, but it's a small component. The primary component is linear, the Gs, the direction yeah, and yeah. sort of in, uh, acceleration in a line. Um, but we know that the only true rotational, pure rotational accelerations come from non-impact events. So if a football player, for example, is, is running in a particular direction and they're hitting the shoulder and their body changes direction and the head is whipped around like whiplash, right? that's a purely rotational acceleration. There's nothing a helmet can do about that. Absolutely not. But for those rotational accelerations that result from an impact to the helmet, most of them are driven first by the magnitude of the linear acceleration. So if I hit... We call it off-center. But if, if a helmet is hit at a location that doesn't go through the center of gravity but goes kind of tangential to the brain, that's going to generate rotational accelerations. But the magnitude of those, those rotational accelerations will depend in large part upon the magnitude of the linear part. Understood. How hard it is. So if you reduce that, then you reduce the resultant rotational acceleration. That, that, make, that makes sense. Okay. That's, that's very simple. Very yeah. simple. But there are also some interesting helmet design concepts to do that. So one of the theories is, and I think Vices does this um, um, overtly, and other companies do it a little bit differently. But if you can somehow decouple the shell from the head, even if it's momentarily. So if you get one of these off-centric hits, the helmet's going to rotate with the hit and, and absorb some of that energy before the head starts to turn. Um, and the longer you can delay that, the less likely a, a large force will be generated and transferred to the brain. Um, so there are, some, there are some design mechanical ways to do that. Um, but it's, um, it, it's, it's not a simple response. It's a very complicated response. Uh, just, to, just to highlight, because I, I think... Um, I know you answered my qu my question in particular, but just, just let me highlight, make sure I, I have it clear. So when we talk about rotational forces and a, and a helmet's ability to mitigate uh, the, the rotational force, you're talking about the, the rotational forces that are secondary to a, an impact to the helmet and not, as you said, to the player that receives a good shot to the shoulder and causes either lateral flexion uh, or whiplash if they get hit in the front or the back. Those, those a helmet just is is not gonna gonna have any influence whatsoever on those types of rotational forces. That's correct. In okay. fact, I could I could argue that in theory, if a helmet's too heavy, it might have an adverse effect on those accelerations. Um, simply because you're you're having you're you're starting the helmet or the head and the helmet system to rotate, but now you've got a larger mass to stop. Right. Yeah. And so the player's not able to stop it, so the distance of that travel can increase. Um, so in, in certain circumstances, you can make that argument. But as a general statement, a helmet is not going to have an effect on reducing or managing rotational accelerations that come from something other than an impact to the helmet. Oh, that's great. That's, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because, I, like I said, I, I can see that now. I couldn't see that before your explanation. So uh, that, that's good stuff. I like that. 
So um, what about one of the criticisms about um, testing in general, not just Noxy testing, but testing in general in the lab setting is that it doesn't incorporate field testing. And you hear this a lot from manufacturers in particular whose maybe they're Maybe their design that they were really, really proud of, maybe it didn't rise on the on the chart just as high as they thought it would, or maybe it didn't compare to other uh, manufacturers' helmets that that are in in that comparison model. And and a lot of times you hear that well, they don't incorporate field testing, and we do field testing in ours. And when you incorporate the field testing, ours is a better helmet. Uh, does does Noxie consider field testing, or what what are your thoughts on field testing a helmet prior to its release? Well, I'm not sure what is meant by field testing. So if, if you're talking about, you know, putting it on a, on a player on a team for a season or two and seeing how well they're protected, um, I would be shocked if anybody would approve that. Because basically you're saying, let's take this high school football player and make him into a guinea pig. Yeah. You know, we don't know how well his helmet's going to do. We think it's going to do pretty well, but we're going to put him on, put it on this kid. And let's see how he does. If he gets hurt, well, we'll go back to the drawing board. <laughs> You know, so that kind of field testing is not only bad, but certainly unethical, and I can't imagine any institutional review board approving that. Right. If by field testing, what you're talking about is that the helmet is tested in configurations and impact scenarios that actually occur on the field, as opposed to just some standardized system, um, I, I don't agree that that's the case. That that has been done for man. 15, 20 years. Um, we know, for example, that impacts to the side of the helmet in football are much more likely to result in a concussion than a blow to the top. Um, we know that there are certain positions where most of the impacts are to the front of the helmet. So if you're a center or a guard or a tackle offensive, you're going to have impacts to the front part of the helmet far more frequently than to the back or the side. If you're a wide receiver, you're more likely to get hit in the side of the head than you are anywhere else. Um, and you're also more likely probably to hit your head on the ground uh, for, and get a concussion as opposed to being hit by another player. So all of that stuff's been taken into account. And all of the data that I mentioned earlier that's been collected through this helmet sensor system since I think 2004 may be the first time they had actual publications, all measured the location, the time of the game, the position, um, uh, the player's medical history in a lot of the cases. So all of that's been incorporated into at least from a, from a helmet manufacturer standpoint, the design process. Now, when you're talking about a comparative system, so the NFL system or the Virginia Tech system, where they're comparing helmet A to helmet B, um, and they say, look, based upon our testing, uh, we think helmet A is more likely to reduce concussions than helmet B. Um, one of the criticisms is that that ranking system doesn't take into effect the actual experience. So if that helmet's been used by 20,000 high school players in three years, and the data is that concussions are very infrequent, the Virginia Tech system doesn't take into account that epidemiology. They just say, based upon our system that came from high school stuff, we can predict that this helmet will do better than that helmet. And the helmet companies that are this and that mm -hmm. want to say that's all well and good, but but the truth is, if you look at the use of that helmet on the field, Helmet A that you predict to be better is not, in fact, better. Helmet B does better in the field. And, and there's been a little bit of work done in that, not a lot. A couple of studies that were published that we actually funded 
um, looked at that from an epidemiology standpoint. So it was a high school level over, I think, three seasons, close to 3,000 players involved. And athletic trainer at the, at the, the, the game or practice documented things like the helmet's brand, its model, its age, the last time it was reconditioned and recertified, uh, the fit in, in one of the studies actually assessed fit as well, and looked at whether any of those variables were more likely associated with a concussion than others. And one of the, one of the variables was brand and model. You can look on the rating scale and see where is this brand and model on the scale and concluded that none of that was really related to the likelihood of a concussion. Uh, so, again, it's, it's a study, it's high school, you can argue that it's limited, but uh, that's the kind of data that I think the companies may be talking about, is that kind of field data. Yeah, so more more epidemiological data than, than what exactly. we would refer to as field testing. Yeah, exactly. I, I can see that. I, I, yeah, I can see that as, as being an argument, especially if you have, if you're the manufacturer and you're, you've, like, as you say, you have 20,000 units in the field and you're collecting information or analytical data on those 20,000 20, helmets and you're finding a certain concussion rate, yeah, I, I can certainly see how you might uh, argue that your helmet didn't come up a little bit further on the ranking system than, than you would like to have seen. I, I can see that. But I think that's, a, that's an important distinction to make is that is, I sounds to me a more rational argument for field testing than what you initially said which was you know to take a helmet and put it on a kid and then measure and then you know right uh but i e even with that model that as you say would, would never uh, would never be able to be done um that would be a, a, a helmet that at least met the noxy standard because you wouldn't even have a helmet manufactured and put out into the field unless it met the Noxie standard. That's correct. Right? So the Noxie standard, therefore, just represents the ante to get into the helmet manufacturing game, right? You, you, if, well, go yeah, ahead. You're, you're, you're correct, and, and I've heard the word ante used before. It's sort of, it's sort of the, the, the joining cost, I guess, or the yeah. participation cost, because whether you're looking at, at ranking systems like Virginia Tech or the NFL or whether you're just looking at approved equipment, um, no helmet is used at any level unless it's first certified uh, compliant with our standard. Um, it, is the, it is truly the cost of, of playing the game if, when it comes to ratings and rankings because th those systems, both of them, only test a size large helmet and they, and they only test, I think, two or maybe four depending on whether it's a new model or not, and that's it. So they based that conclusion on the assumption that every other model, every other unit in that model at that size would perform identically or, mm. or statistically identically. And the only way they can know that is because it's been certified to our standard, which includes a very robust quality control requirement. Um, and, you know, so to that extent, it is, it is the cost of, of being in that game. I was... Last week at, um, in Youngstown, the NFL announced its, I think it's third, what they call head-to-helmet challenge, where they invite researchers and, and engineers and others to come in and, and come up with a new design that will address concussions in, in football. And we were there, and they presented um, on one of the days about the standard, and they made it very clear that, you know, if you're trying to develop a prototype to participate in this grant program, First thing it's got to do is meet the standard. Meet the Otherwise, standard. you're not even there. So mm -hmm. it is it is the cost of getting into that arena. 
Okay. So your your Noxy standard, I have two questions. Your your Noxy standard is based on a severity index. Yes. And the Noxy standard is pass fail. Right? It, it is. It, you either meet the severity index or you ex or you're you're below the severity index or you exceed the severity index, pass fail, simple as that. Right. Um, rating systems aren't pass fail. Rating systems are, are it's a rank. So right. so how I, I think you, you started to talk a little bit about it. How how is it that the Noxy standard is different than the research that goes into the ranking systems, whether it's the NFL or the Virginia Tech star rating? Well, it's different because both the star system and the NFL system have developed testing protocol based upon the injury biomechanics that they have identified in that class of athletes. So the NFL is only based upon NFL player data. They look at all the concussions that occur in, in the NFL. They go back and, and review the, the game film. They reconstruct them. They try to measure from that what the likely accelerations were, the impact location, and so forth. And out of that data, they identify those key components that, for their purpose, are important in distinguishing concussions from non-concussions. All right, let, let, so, let, let me... Let me be rude and interrupt just for a second yeah, because no, I, th no. I think um, now the the NFL makes it clear it's it's all over in in everything that that they report that this is based on NFL players and it's based on NFL information. So they're you know they're very clear about that. That's um, my my question is when the media gets a hold of that and produce and and shows everybody the NFL ranking system. They don't necessarily make that as clear as the NFL does. So they don't. So what do you tell mom when mom says, uh, you know, comes to the athletic director and the athlete, you know, the athletic director is faced with our athletes are in this helmet, but this NFL ranking system shows that it's four down on the list relative yeah. to these other helmets. So why aren't our athletes wearing these helmets? Because they're the safest helmets, and it's the NFL telling us that these are safest helmets. So. Going back to the you know the, the counseling uh, aspect of it, what what do what do our medical professionals say about the NFL study? Uh, obviously, you know it's, it's a very scientific base. I'm I'm not taking a shot at the NFL study. I, I'm I'm saying it it is exactly what it is, and the NFL lets everybody know exactly. And as medical professionals, we know that. But as mom and dad who just see the report maybe coming across on the internet or coming across on the on the evening news. What do we tell mom and dad about that study? How, how does mom and dad decipher that study? Well, again, as a consumer, you have to not just rely on some advertisement or some story you see on TV or read on the Internet. You know, if you really want to make a difference, dig down and find out. Um, the NFL has improved its disclaimer, if you will, uh, over time. Um, I had a meeting with the, um, the NFL spine, head, neck, and spine committee, subcommittee chairman, about a year and a half ago. It was, it was before the latest ratings came out, but after the ones before it. And one of the comments I made was the fact that whether it's intended or not, a helmet that's highly rated in your system is going to be pushed all the way down to the, to the youth level. Absolutely. Because it's a pro helmet. And yeah. it's clear that's not a good thing to do. And you guys need to make that clear. And they have done that. That's yeah. still not very well. I mean, I think the, the poster that came out two years ago said nothing about that. Now at least they have it in like bold print at the bottom or something right, about correct, it, they do. using yep. it. Um, 
but um, but what I tell you know, mom and dad is, you know, if you're telling me your son's a pro player today and he's going to be in an environment where he's going to get hit with the same velocities and energies that a pro player does and he's wearing a large helmet, size large helmet, that's a good choice for you. But if he's not any of those things, then you need to ignore that part of that rating system and look at other things like fit, look at comfort. Um, I, I tell people all the time, especially with issues of fit, a size large in a Riddell is going to fit you different than a size large in a Shut or than a size large in a Zenith. Everybody's got a little bit of a different configuration. Shells are not identical, and people have heads that are not the same. So if you have the opportunity, try some on. Find, find some that fit. Um, but, again, getting back to the NFL rating system, you know, you're looking at not only is it a unique set of data that's just limited to the NFL, but the subjects in that data set are highly selective, which means Darwin has, has rid that class of all the weaklings right. you know, over time. By the time you get to the NFL, you're pretty much concussion um, resistant. I mean, probably genetically, the likelihood of you getting to the NFL. Making it that far sustained, without something, yeah. Right. Having sustained a bunch of brain-damaging injuries, you know, through youth up to high school is probably pretty small. So that's a really resilient set of people. Um, and they play at levels and velocities that, that most colleges, 95% of college players don't see. Uh, and so extrapolating one to the other is a very dangerous thing to do. And the other thing I point out is you can, you can put the helmets on the NFL poster in order next to the helmets rated on Virginia Tech, and you don't see consistency. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see some that are, that are um, uh, four and three stars on the Virginia Tech scale. It'll be five stars or, or high green on the NFL. Um, and there's a reason there's a difference. It's not necessarily a flaw in either system. They're basing it on a whole different set of data. Um, and so don't make those, don't draw those conclusions. So the Virginia Tech star rating and the NFL are, are by far the one that get the absolute most press, if you That's will. Correct. So it's just, it, it's, it sounds to me like if I, if someone was going to come to me and I, I do, I get much like you, I get those questions on a pretty consistent basis. So when you're trying to decipher that and provide good counsel, uh, relative to those, it sounds to me like maybe those rating systems are a good starting point for looking at the helmets that you should consider and then going and trying those helmets on and see which one fits the best, uh, which one your athlete is most comfortable in because then they're more likely to wear it when it's properly fit. You know, they'll, they'll know what it feels like. They'll, um, they'll maintain the fit over the, over the course of the season and get the best, uh, get the best protection that that, that that particular helmet offers. That's more important maybe than picking the helmet that's on the top and just saying, well, the NFL said it's this, so I'm going to go buy that helmet. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good analysis and a good, a good way to explain it. Um, the way I tend to do it is to say, you know, if you're talking about picking helmet A over helmet B based upon, let's say, the star rating system, if you've convinced yourself that all of the other variables are the same, in your son or daughter's exposure, and the only variable that, that's left to decide is which helmet, then use the ranking system by all means. But the, the problem is all other things are never equal when it comes to concussions. We mentioned the frequency, for example, earlier that you know when you get above 
maybe 110 Gs, the likelihood of a, of a concussion is significant. That's a relative statement. It's significant compared to accelerations below 40. But for every concussion that occurs above 100 Gs, there will be 500 to 1,000 impacts at that level or higher where no concussion mm-hmm. occurs. Mm-hmm. Why the one and not the others? Why is it one out of 1,000 at that level? Now, it may be one out of 10,000 at the low level, but it's only one out of 1,000 at the high level. Why is it? What happened to the other 999? Why didn't they get a concussion? And that's where the variables come in. You know, if the player is somebody who sustained uh, concussions before and frequently, maybe they're just susceptible. Maybe there's a genetics or, a, or a, an anatomy issue that, that makes them more susceptible to, to concussions. Um, maybe, they're, maybe they play the game the wrong way. Maybe they're too aggressive or maybe they're not aggressive enough. You know, what's the health situation when a concussion occurred? Was that player otherwise healthy? Were they dehydrated? Had they been ill the previous weeks? Had they fully recovered from a prior concussion? All those variables go into determining whether or not a concussion will occur on a particular play. If you assume all those variables are the same, then what helmet should that player be wearing to avoid a concussion? Then you can pick helmet pick A it, over helmet B. Pick it off the top of the list, right. Yeah, right. yeah, but, but those are never, they're never equal. And the other problem, we mentioned this earlier, is size. You know, everybody tests size large. The NFL does, the, the, uh, Virginia Tech tests the size large. Most helmet companies have six or seven or eight different sizes mm-hmm. in a model. Yeah. Now, they don't have six or seven different shell sizes, maybe have three. But within a shell size, they may, they may have two sizes in that or three sizes mm-hmm. in that. So the large helmet in, in model A may be a five-star. The medium helmet may be a two-star or vice versa. The two-star in the large in that model may be a five-star in the medium, but no testing's done. There's no assessment on those other sizes. Um, so, again, that's one of those other variables. If you're talking about your son wears a size large and all these other things are equal, then pick one off the list. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of variables to, to, to say are equal. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. So uh, that, that's always been in a, a something I wanted to point out that I, was something new that I learned was that uh, Noxie is the ante to get in the game to even be able to be ranked by Virginia that's Tech correct. or or by that's the correct. by the NFL. So uh, that's that's an important um, distinction to make. So um, this idea of a concussion helmet, media loves to play the concussion helmet card, right? Anytime there's wind of a new manufacturer throwing their hat in the ring, if you will, uh, no pun intended. Um, it always comes out that the, the lead into that story on TV is a concussion helmet. You know, the, the new manufacturer attempting to make the concussion helmet. I, I like at the outset to, my own personal opinion is to debunk the idea of a concussion helmet that uh, most manufacturers will tell you that's not even in our list of objectives, that we try and create helmets that are as safe as possible or not even safe, probably won't even use that word, but we'll provide as much head protection as, as we can possibly design into that. What are your thoughts on this idea? I actually had a physician during one of our, uh, during one of our emergency response program, training programs. I had a physician <clears throat> suggest to me, out, outright say to me actually, that 
he thought that we were in possession of a concussion helmet, of technology that in and of itself can reduce the incidence of concussion. So as you say, you take a kid that's not, or an individual that's not wearing a helmet, they experience some sort of G-force, they get a concussion. You put that helmet on them, they don't get the concussion. So we actually have helmets that are able to protect us against concussion, uh, some better than others. What are your thoughts on the idea of, are, are we in possession of helmet technology that prevent, directly prevents concussion, or are we on the verge of that technology? Is that technology foreseeable in the future? Or are we, uh, generally speaking, expecting too much out of uh, helmets as far as head protection? Well, I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm hesitant to say there's no such thing ever or will be ever as a concussion-proof helmet because I think if you sell that idea, then people will stop trying. And, and I don't think you need to do that. I think you need to encourage people. Um, but I think the truth of the matter is that the only way you can prevent all concussions with a football helmet is to design a helmet that prevents the head from moving at all. Um, and that might be doable. I can't imagine it would be useful or functional. Yeah, yeah. But, but you, you could do that. I mean, that, that's the key is, is preventing the head from accelerating. I, I, I try to remind people from time to time that, that you're born with a helmet for your brain. We all have one. It's a skull. Mm -hmm. The skull is designed to protect your brain. That's the whole point of it, being there. And so the helmet's really a helmet for the helmet. It's a helmet for the head, so there's already a helmet involved in that system. So you're trying to do something that prevents the head from moving or moving as rapidly or moving as quickly. Um, um, and that's where it becomes really, really difficult. Um, I do think that helmets today, and probably helmets always, have prevented concussions. Um, I can't tell you what the percentage is. I, you know, I, I can't say they've prevented 20% of concussions or 50% of concussions. Um, but if, if, you, if you take the assumption that there's, a, there's a, a subset of concussions that are primarily linear-based, so primarily a result of really high G-forces, um, I don't think there's any question that helmets are preventing concussions because they reduced G-forces that the brain experiences. There's no way I can measure that uh, because you're talking about measuring a non-event. Why did this person not get a concussion on that play? Well, it's a little bit difficult to assess. Yeah, right. you know? yeah. um, but the numbers I gave you earlier about the 700 million impacts a year and so forth, um, one of the things we did about four years ago or maybe longer now is – we did a series of tests in our laboratory at, uh, in Knoxville where we, we tested a bare head form. So we have a, what's called a biofidelic head form. It mimics the way the human head responds in all manner. It's got the same impedance, the same harmonic resonance, the same mass as a 50th percentile adult male. Uh, it's got a urethane um, um, skin, if you will, that absorbs a little bit of energy. It's got a cranial vault and nasal cavities. It, but it's also got accelerometers that measure accelerations. And so in order to get an idea about what helmets were doing, we drop tested the head form starting at six inches up to I think 48 inches. We did it in six inch increments and we measured the accelerations. What 
what kind of accelerations does the head experience without a helmet when you drop it onto this test surface, this really hard chunk of rubber? And what we saw was when we, once we got to about uh, 20, I don't know if it was 28 or 24 inches, um, the Gs were over 200, um, which is almost universally fatal if they occur in that short of a time frame. You test it with a helmet, and the Gs at that level were about 60. So if the helmet's reducing those Gs by 70-some percent, mm -hmm. um, and it does it up the line and down the line. We had to actually had to stop dropping the, helm, the head form at 48 because we were starting to break the head forms um, in the system. We can drop it with a helmet up to 120 inches or higher. As I think that's probably as high as anybody can do a drop test. Um, but so what we learned is that the helmet is reducing linear accelerations by a substantial margin. Um, you get into the 150, 100 G range, which is something that, that um, you could experience in, in football without a helmet. The, the resultant Gs with a helmet are in the 20s. Yeah. Um, way below any injury threshold that anybody's identified for concussions. So by doing that, I'm convinced that helmets have always prevented a number of concussions, probably a substantial number of concussions. Um, I just can't tell you what the number mm -hmm. is. But the reason we looked at it was to see if there was going to be a way to measure any additional protective effect that a design change or a change in our standard might have. You know, if you're already down in the very bottom, let's say you're, let's say you're preventing 99% of all the concussions, uh, will I be able to measure the 99.2, that 2.2% increase because of a change in the standard? And I think the answer is you probably won't be. doesn't mean you shouldn't make the change. It just means you're probably not going to be able to point to an outcome mm -hmm. that's a direct result of that change, um, even though you know it's an improvement and you, even though you know it's probably addressed some small category of concussion. Right. You're just not going to be able to – it's too small to measure? Too small to measure. You know, yeah. the, 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 the plus minus on those yeah. is probably bigger than the change you're going you're gonna, to uh, elucidate from that change in the standard. It, it's pretty hard when you, when you watch any – any football game and you see the helmet to helmet collisions and they they run them back you know they they replay them in slow motion and you see you, you just see the impact force and you see the deformation of the helmet it, it's just hard to believe and and to boot the athlete just gets up and walks off the field right, right? it's right. hard it's hard to believe that if we went back to 1980 right and and that athlete was in was in uh, either a suspension helmet at that time or, you know, the, the little foam padding was just starting to come out, right? The, the inside right, of the helmet right. had the foam padding. It's hard right. to imagine if that athlete took that hit in that helmet that they would have got up off the field like, like they did. I think yeah. that's a very accurate observation. Yeah, yeah. So, look, um, we're, we're, we've talk, talked about a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, and the Noxy standard talked about the Noxy standard and its influence and, and how, but you don't do the testing there where you are. You, you do this at outside agencies or outside universities and research groups. So who oversees the Noxy standard? How, how does, is it each individual manufacturer that, that, that does their own testing? Who oversees that testing pro protocol? Very good question. And, and it's, it's going to, it's got several parts. The answer has several parts. So let me let me kind of start with a little bit of history. Um, 
until about 2010, 2012, um, all of the helmet certifications of, as to whether they complied with the standard were made by the manufacturer. So if you pulled up a helmet and you looked at this logo on the back mm -hmm. of the helmet, it would say manufacturer certifies beats Noxy standard. And the standard required that they have a, a QC protocol uh, that um, uh, would generate a substantial likelihood that all the helmets would meet the standard. We were vague on what that meant. Um, and, but the manufacturer was obligated to do that production level testing. And then if we asked for it to produce to us that test data that, that verifies what they're actually certifying on the helmet. Manufacturer self-certification is sort of the standard in all helmet areas. It's whether it's motorcycle helmets, DOT helmets, even advanced combat helmets are all initially manufacturer self-certified. Um, we decided uh, um, around 2012 to add a layer to that, which was to um, require that annually the, main, the, the licensees and manufacturers would submit each of their models to an independent laboratory for validation. So they would, they would send in a set of new helmets and the laboratory would test them and we'd get a report that say, yeah, we've tested the models okay. and they in fact do meet the standards. So that was an incremental improvement, sort of adding some, some independent review of what they do. As an organization, we don't test any helmets officially for anybody. We don't do any of the certification testing. We don't do any of the evaluation. Again, we don't approve or disapprove or, or anything about a particular model. We publish the standards. We maintain those standards and we do the research um, we depend on the people who make the helmets to do things like design changes and, and so forth. But everybody was pretty pleased with this third-party validation concept. Um, we had an event uh, with a, um, it was in the, in the news with, with lacrosse helmets in 2014 where um, we had asked for some certification data from one of the companies and they didn't have any to produce to us. And so we terminated or suspended their license agreement and avoided the certification of those cross helmets. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Huge problem for a lot of people. You know, we did it as timely as we could, and it turns out that the timing of our decision was like a week before the the fall <laughs> college exposure <laughs> tournament season. Which, which, you know, I mean, uh, well, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, yeah, we right. we we don't look at those kind of things when right. we make our decision. Right. But but we decided after that that you know what this is. This is just not acceptable. Um, and so we started in 2015, late 2015, a requirement that every product that's certified compliant with our standard has to be certified by an independent and internationally accredited certifying body. Uh, there's a whole set of, of ISO or International Standards Organization standards for those kinds of bodies. They're, they're called, used to be called Guide 65 bodies, but they're now 170. Six, five. But they are accredited independent bodies. Univer or, uh, Underwriters Laboratories is an example of one for electronics. Um, we chose a group called the Safety Equipment Institute that at that time was doing, they did all the national fire protection equipment, NFPA. They did um, even did bomb protection suits for the Department of Justice. So they certified compliance with DOJ standards. And that program is extensive. Um, the manufacturer cannot put a certification label on their helmet unless SEI issues a letter. And to have that letter issued, the manufacturer has to submit to an annual compliance audit by auditors that SEI brings in. And that's compliance with all of their own QC and QA program data. 
they have to have the program approved by SEI. You know, just, is this going to result in, in the compliance that we need? And then SEI actually sends auditors into the production plant, wherever that is, China, India, Georgia, it doesn't matter. And the production auditors go in once a year, and they look at all the test data, they look at all the rigs, they look at the production machinery, they look at all of the quality control to make sure that everything's doing what it's supposed to do. And then SEI sends sample helmets into independent laboratories for testing uh, to validate that. So it's an extremely involved process. Yes, it is. And, and there's no other helmet company I'm aware of in the world that does that, um, that requires that level of compliance. Uh, we did it because, number one, we wanted to add to the integrity of our standard. We wanted to let people know that it wasn't just some sticker that goes on a helmet, that mm -hmm. there's a lot behind it. Um, it was not a program that manufacturers wanted. It is not cheap. Well, I was going to say, uh, it sounds like it's a very costly undertaking. It's a costly undertaking. I mean, not only do they pay an annual participation fee to... SEI, but they get a per helmet, uh, there's a cost, per helmet cost of all the certification, they have to pay the cost of the audits that come in, and if there's a recall audit or something else, they have to pay for all that, so it becomes rather expensive. Um, as an example of the argument that we're controlled by manufacturers, um, we would never have gotten that approved if the manufacturers controlled what we do. They have input, they have a third of the total votes, I think, if you were counting all the votes up, but... Um, but the result of that process was not only to, to add this really, really independent third-party layer of, of certification, but it, at the time we did it, we also implemented our own QC and QA requirements in the standards. We specified that in order to certify helmet or have one certified by SEI, you had to be able to establish to a 95% level of confidence that 99% of the helmets that you make meet the standard. <laughs> You're only gonna test you know, some small mm -hmm. percentage of them. Mm -hmm. But if we tested every one, 99% would pass. Um, which, you know, people say, well, why wasn't it 100? Well, QA programs don't recognize 100, it's right. impossible. Yeah. Something's gonna happen, you have one. Right. Um, but I can give you a perspective, the advanced combat helmet quality control standards are 90-90. So 90% confidence level that 90% of the combat helmets meet the standard. We're, we're tougher than that. Um, and so SEI, one of their responsibilities is to basically enforce that level on the manufacturers. And that's what they're looking for when they do the audits. That, that is quite an ante to get into the game. It is. It, it that is. is a very serious ante to get into the game. Wow, is. I had no idea. No, the, con the consequence of not complying, though, is a helmet that presents an increased risk of injury to a player, and that's just not acceptable. Right. Well, I, I had no idea. I knew there was a third party involved, um, but I, I had no idea that it was that involved. That's amazing. Well, and, and there's another advantage to it, which is something we had tried to do for years and just weren't able to do. But SEI publishes a list of certified equipment by manufacturer and model on their website. So if you're concerned about helmet you have or somebody's trying to sell you a product and they claim it's certified and you mm. don't know you can go to the website and look when you go to search certified equipment you can go down to the noxy tab and they'll list everything by by manufacturer brand model number um and any other identifying information that's needed so an, another another good resource for them to go to for for anyone to go to to make sure that a piece of equipment is at least meeting some sort of a standard to make a decision on. okay fantastic 
All right, look, uh, to, to wrap things up, I, I really appreciate, again, the amount of time that you've spent with us. I, I, I don't actually know how long we've been running because this has just been a, a learning experience for me too. So I, I really appreciate that. But I don't want to take up, I don't want to overextend my welcome. But I would like to ask you one final question. And, and that is, you guys have done a lot of work uh, since what was it, 73, I think we identified, right? Uh, so right. A, a lot of effort and a lot of money has been put into this standard and, and producing this standard and, and, and improvement of head protection and those types of things. So where do you see Noxie fitting into the future of head protection? Well, I think we'll continue the role we always have, which is we're the ones that are the foundation of helmet performance. I mean, compliance with our standard gets you, as we said, into the game, but it is, it is a substantial entry uh, gate into that. Uh, so I, I see us continuing that. Um, what we have always been doing or trying to do uh, is to improve all of the standards, um, whether we use a different pass-fail metric or whether we, um, we incorporate other testing as we've done with the, with the football helmet standard. Um, we're always looking for ways to, to better address excuse me, better address the risk of injury in a particular sport with equipment. Um, we're not adverse to even plowing new ground in that area. Um, we just recently uh, published the final version of our standard to protect athletes from sudden uh, cardiac death event called commodial cordis, which is when you get struck in the chest by a ball at a particular low time in the heart cycle, you can send the heart into ventricular fibrillation. Um, it's not a common event. It occurs in ice hockey, baseball, soccer, or, or, I'm sorry, ice hockey, baseball, lacrosse. Um, it, it has happened a few times in football, but primarily the three sports there. It, two players who are wearing chest protection, um, whether it's a lacrosse goalie or a, or a catcher in baseball. Mm -hmm. And we started looking into why that event occurs and what causes it. Um, I think it was 2000, wow, might have been 2003. Uh, at that time, nobody knew what it was. They just knew it happened. Kid gets hit in the chest, takes a couple steps, falls over. Right. They yeah. do CPR, it doesn't help. They go to the hospital, the kid's dead. They do an autopsy, no bruising, no damage to the heart, no damage to the chest or muscles or no bruising. And nobody knew what it was, so they just chalked it up as to sudden cardiac death. And um, uh, we started research on that um, with uh, Dr. Mark Link at Tufts University to try to find out what the event was. He identified it. We then moved that into now we know what it is. How do we prevent it? We put off-the-shelf chest protectors on some pigs and shot them with the balls. They still got the, the event. Um, and we were able eventually to find out what the threshold impact forces or pressures were that caused that. Um, develop that into a standard and finally we're able to publish that standard and now you're seeing chest protectors in baseball and lacrosse being um, sold and published that have to be approved and have the Noxy logo on it and certified by SEI and the National High School Federation NCAA and I, I suspect some other uh, youth organizations are going to start requiring compliance with that standard so that's the kind of thing that we're looking at you know is there something that we can bring clarity to in the area of injury risk and protection and if we can, is there some way to address that with the standard? We're happy to do that. Oh, outstanding. Outstanding. Mike, uh, thank you very much. I, uh, again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out. You, the, 
the role that you play at Noxie um, and, and to have you take time out and, and come to our podcast and, and take part in our podcast. I'm honored that you would do such a thing. Um, Happy to do it. Yeah, and I, I, I know I've answered a lot of my, had, had a lot of my own questions answered. And Good. hopefully in the process of doing that, answered some questions and maybe shine some light uh, for those that listen to the podcast and hopefully provided you an opportunity to meet one of those objectives. And that was to disseminate the information that you guys work so hard to collect. So I appreciate it. And the last question I have is whose helmet is that in the background? What team is that? Is that a favorite team? Well, it's my alma mater. All right. It's a, it's a K-State helmet. All right. Um, I actually played there as a walk-on in 1970. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, 19, what was it, 1972, 73, as a walk-on out of high school. Um, that was back in the Vince Gibson era, way back then. <laughs> and... Um, and so it's graduated there. My wife is a graduate there, and one of my daughters graduated there. So I, um, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I usually have a helmet that I'm using to, to you know, illustrate things or point to or whatever. And I didn't have one of those, and I mentioned to the, uh, to the equipment manager at Kansas State that, uh, you know, it might be an opportunity for some, you know, some free publicity here. So I want to use somebody's helmet. Might yeah. as well use yours from time well, that, to time. That's a speed they, flex. That's that's a speed flex. That's not one that you wore back in the 70s. No, right? no, 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 no. I That's not the bike air helmet. <laughs> no, I have one that I wore. In fact, I was, I was before bike air. Yeah. I mean, I was wearing yeah, McGregor. Yeah, that's right. You would have been, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can. It was back in the day. and it, My team had pretty good equipment. We were fairly well funded at my high school. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, a whole different era back then. Yeah, but it was fun. It was fun. And listen, I also want to mention you mentioned the athletic trainers. The NATA has been um, a, a vital part of what we do, almost from the beginning, if not from the beginning. So we have two board seats that the NATA fills um, that represent what we call end users or consumers. They're the people mm-hmm. that actually work with the athlete day to day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they have been vital to what we do. Uh, we have a great relationship with them. Um, our, the current representatives are uh, Kim Barber Foss out of, um, I think, Cincinnati as a general statement, but she works with high school athletes daily. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Sims, who is the, um, I think he still is, the uh, assistant athletic director at Baylor for, for athletic okay. training. Um, outstanding people. We get a great amount of input from them and great insight in what we're doing. So it's a relationship we really treasure. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. That uh, again, a new nugget of information that I wasn't aware of. So, we're gonna uh, we'll we'll break uh, with our podcast for today. But I, w- I want to just let everybody know that that your no- the the Noxie website is a good resource for you to go to to look at the various pieces of equipment that are available, and also to lead into other areas where they can find information on you know the Comocio Cortis issue is is a I, I think is important, and to know that. When you see things hanging out there in the retail centers that uh, prevent commotional quarters for lacrosse and stuff like that, that if, if moms and dads want to know if that piece of equipment really is doing what it says it's doing or meets the standards that you guys have, they can find that information on your website. Absolutely. It's just so, noxy.org and, and um, pick a tab. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Mike, thank you very much. I'll look forward to meeting you someday. I don't know whether you, you uh, I'm, I'm sure you're out at uh, the NATA convention or, or some of those conventions. I'm going to, I'll have to make sure that we hook up and actually meet for real sometime. Let's do that because I am going to be at the, uh, the AFCA convention coming up and actually speaking to an AEMA group 
um, as a part of that yeah. in January. Uh, any any chance you're at the uh, the PFATS meeting out in Indian, in Indianapolis in February? Probably I mean, not. Yeah. Um, we have our winter board meeting in February, and I think there's a, a conflict. I it will be there in April. We have a, a joint rules meeting with the NCA and the National Federation and yeah. the sporting goods people to talk about updates and rules and equipment and so forth. That, yeah. But that's April. I don't know the day yet. Well, we run in, it sounds like we run in the same circles, just a matter of time before we bump into each other. So I'll look forward yeah. to that. I appreciate it, Mike, and okay. thank you for the opportunity. All right, thank you. I'll see you soon. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Skull Sessions from Sports Medicine Concepts. You can listen to the audio version of this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.